Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are continuing our conversation of Albert Camus' The Rebel. We are discussing part four, rebellion and art. In the last episode, we discussed part three, which was metaphysical rebellion. Um, so check that one out if you aren't keeping up with us. Uh, in this one, Camus really talks about art in the context of rebellion and revolution. Uh, he also talks about this. We did an episode on the myth of Sisyphus, and he talks about art and absurdist art and absurdism and how art relates to the absurd in that. So you can check out that episode if you want uh, that different perspective. Uh, it's a little different, I think, than what he talks about here in The Rebel. Um, anything to add before we dive in? No, I'm kind of excited. Dig art. Dig art as a way um, to express oneself uh, in, well, in both ways, actually. We usually deal with art as propaganda for state or for positions of power, but also we dabble in the idea of art being an act of resistance. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see what he says within that, the context of the rebel, for sure. Should be exciting. Cool. He says, quote, Art is the activity that exalts and denies simultaneously. Rebellion can be observed here in its pure states and in its original complexities. Thus, art should give us a final perspective on the content of rebellion. So basically, he's ending his long discussion in the book of rebellion and his analysis of rebellion by looking at art and its relationship to a, a rebellion. He says art should give us a final perspective on the content of rebellion. Then the next part, part five, is him... Uh, which we'll do in the next episode, him talking about his sort of conclusions, I guess, that he's drawn from this analysis. In the first part here, he talks about how revolutionaries, he calls them revolutionary reformers, have been critical of art and why. Uh, for example, if you remember our conversation about the Russian nihilists, uh, you can watch that episode if you want more there. They critique all aesthetics, I mean, just wholesale, any kind of art or music etc they say is essentially just a waste of time um yeah so watch that episode if you want more there he also says quote german ideology is no less severe in its accusations according to the revolutionary interpreters of hegel's phenomenology there will be no art in reconciled society beauty will be lived and no longer only imagined reality becomes entirely rational reality become entirely rational will satisfy completely by itself Every appetite. Here he's talking about Marx and uh, Marxist interpreters, Lenin and so forth. He basically says, in their envisioned utopia, which he talked about in the previous section, there will be no art because life itself essentially will be a work of art. There will be no contradiction and conflict in life that, what, is, what does he say? Or beauty will be lived and no longer only imagined. So, he says basically revolutionaries, whether they're the Russian nihilists or the German, you know, Marxists, etc., they all critique art for various region, uh, reasons. Um, he says that revolutionaries are skeptical of art because, quote, the revolutionary spirit born of total negation instinctively felt that, as well as refusal, there was also consent to be found in art. No form of art can survive on total denial alone, just as all thought and primary that of non-signification signifies something. So there is no art that has no signification. So basically art cannot be total negation because art in some way implies the consent to some version of reality. Whatever it chooses to depict, there is some amount of reality depicted 
within that art. And this has uh, real consequences for Camus. He thinks that this is very significant in what the artist chooses, even if it's sort of like unconsciously chooses to what version of reality it, the artist chooses to remain within their art. Um, so essentially, in addition to negation, revolutionaries recognize some amount of consent to some aspect of reality within art. And this is a contradiction which they must confront within themselves as well. He says, quote, to create beauty, the artist must simultaneously reject reality and exalt certain of its aspects. Art disputes reality, but it does not hide from it. And so he says that the revolutionaries do the exact same thing to some extent. And so they are forced to sort of confront the same contradiction that exists within art. They're forced to confront within themselves that revolutionaries are not don't represent a whole wholesale negation of reality, that there are some portions of reality that the revolutionaries seek to are at least inspired by or seek to continue uh, through their revolution, that there is no, you know, absolute negation coming from a revolutionary. In fact, I think if we go back to the earlier sections, Saad was the only one that Camus labels as absolute negation, but the revolutionaries do not qualify for reasons he talks about in, you know, sections two and three before we got here. Anything to add? I guess I'm, I'm confused if I'm going to be honest here in this mm-hmm. section, because he went through in the prior section, part three, our, actually our favorite section, um, historical rebellion. And he's talking, and I'm focused mostly on the Marxist part rather than the fascist part or, 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 or the regicides or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. The idea um, of historical materialism that he dabbles in a little bit. Camus not necessarily dabbling in it as a true believer, but as someone that was discussing it. And if he's doing this discussion in relation to now art and Marxist revolutionary thought, I guess I'm missing. It feels like there's a disconnection there that if the Marxist revolutionaries are willing to engage in historical materialism, i.e. the context of their era, why would there be an acceptable negation of the art as well in my own mind, being part of that historical material construct. Ah, so he actually talks about this specifically Mm. um, later on when he talks about propaganda and he actually does say that art does serve the revolution in some capacity, but not it itself is contradictory to the goal of the revolution. I don't know that I wholly dis- I don't know that I wholly fast. disagree with that either. I mean, if we look at again using the specific examples that he used in the prior section, if we look at the Marxist examples, uh, and I'll pick on the Soviet Union here, Lenin, Comintern, etc., the dictatorship of the proletariat became master manipulators of art. Right? They were chief propagandists. And one could surmise that their ability to manipulate information through propaganda, especially artistic representation, was counterintuitive to the purity of the revolution, i.e. its negation, in this case, of, of capital and states and so on and so forth. I guess I could see that. He says, quote, art does not belong to all times. It is determined, on the contrary, by its period and expresses, says Marx, the privileged values of the ruling class. Thus, there is only one revolutionary form of art, which is precisely art dedicated to the service of the revolution. Moreover, by creating beauty outside the course of history, 
art impedes the only rational activity, the transformation of history itself into absolute beauty. So Camus argues that for art, for Marx, I mean, and Marxists, that art represents the values of the ruling class, so they're against it in that respect, but also only functions to impede the natural progression of history. So when we talk about historical materialism, you know, Camus suggests that Marx would argue that art is an impediment to that natural progression, the evolution of history, which the Marxists, the materialists in this case, are trying to bring about, or at least waiting to come about. I wonder if we can find something directly rather than going through Camus' filter of Marx talking about that. So in this case, I would probably critique Marx, not Camus, since this is merely mm-hmm. Camus relaying this information to us. But I would argue that's that's a wildly inadequate um, explanation of art, that it is only produced by the ruling class to, of course, reproduce the the, the status quo and preserve the superstructure and so on and so forth. I, I that that would be another good critique that we can include in a later um, deconstruction of Marxism through the lens of Camus, because I, I, I find it wildly inadequate. So again, in this case, we'll be critiquing, I'm critiquing Marx, not Camus, explaining right. Marx to us, right? Yeah, and like one of our goals, one of my goals for this year was to really look into the history and talk about, you know, revolutionary art and go into thinkers like right. Benjamin and so forth, which we never got around to. And clearly it's not going to happen before the end of the year, but I would like to revisit that. I mean, even the big point. players, the the Picassos and Van Gogh, Camus mm-hmm. brings up Van Gogh, obviously, in the section. Um, even the big yeah. players. I mean, it'd be interesting. Like, like I mean, you've seen Guernica, like, like that's, mm-hmm. I guess I just don't see through the Marxist filter, how that would be an impediment to the revolution. But again, I digress. Uh, let's continue. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it goes to the, you know, the absolute full commitment to materialism, right? Art represents the ideal. Does it represent the material? I don't know, right? That's a debate to be had. And in this case, according to Camus, right, it represents the ideals of the ruling class, not of the working class, to use Marxist terms. But whose ideal? I get it. Yeah. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. ruling class, ruling ideas, that's that's Marxist philosophy. But I, I guess for any sort of act of rebellion, again, using the Marxist lens here, there is the possibility at some point to for creative expression that challenges the ruling class. I mean, it, it, I mean, I would have to assume that there is. Well, Camus argues later on, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that there, I mean, he would argue against that, right? Even Guernica is a good example. Like, it's a critique, for sure, of the events that transpired. Is it creation, right? Is it a novel creation of something? Like, no doubt Picasso is an amazing artist, but Camus would probably argue he's not actually creating something new, in the midst of revolution, because Camus argues that that's actually impossible. It's only possible once the revolution ends that creativity can take place. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. So it's very Brahmanistic now is where my mind is going, that there has to be absolute destruction before there can be creation. We need... That's actually Camus' argument in this section. Okay. But we'll get there in a second. Uh, Quote, art thus leads us back to the origins of rebellion, to the extent that it tries to give its form to an elusive value which the future perpetually promises, but of which the artist has a presentiment and wishes to snatch from the grasp of history. Then he goes into at least one example. The next section is rebellion and the novel, and he talks about novels uh, in detail and their relationship to rebellion and revolution. He says, quote, 
It is possible to separate the literature of consent, which coincides by and large with ancient history in the classical period, from the literature of rebellion, which begins in modern times. We note the scarcity of fiction in the former. When it exists, with very few exceptions, it is not concerned with a story, but with fantasy. These are fairy tales, not novels. So Camus is suggesting that basically pre-modern art was either a representation of reality or it was pure fantasy, and he calls this the literature of consent. And he contrasts this with modern art, which he calls the literature of rebellion. I don't know. What do you think about this line he's drawing in the sand here historically? I don't know that I wholly agree with it. I do. Well, I mean, I guess my mind goes back to our, our constant concept of ethically constitutive stories that works its way into numerous, numerous episodes that we record. But if I look at like pre-modern art and the narratives, and since he's talking mostly about narratives, the narratives that maintain whatever status quo we're talking about from Greek mythology to uh, indigenous storytelling and so on and so forth. I mean, yes, I would argue they're wildly creative, but they're creative in a way to relay information and socialize individuals into the current constructs of that time. And so in that case, I would argue they're not rebellious whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I guess I'm willing to accept that to an extent. However, those are just the ones that are best remembered. I, I guess what I'm saying is, and I don't want to like get, go all the way down the rabbit hole of is Camus like in the 1950s and sixties an archeologist and does he know all the narratives? And maybe it's just, we don't remember the people that were rebelling against the status quo way back in the day and so on and so forth. I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole, but I would argue that it is in, he's got tunnel vision in that interpretation. Like he's mm -hmm. not willing to accept that there was um, pushback um, in all of these uh, pre-modern societies. Uh, and again, I know he's mostly focused on Western Civ, but even in Western Civ, there's definitely going to be pushback. I mean, even something like a Euripides and his satire, if, if I want to pick on the ancient Greeks, like that, that satire was pushback. Is it an active act of rebellion? I don't know. I mean, he was definitely cast out of Athens. I mean, he was exiled. So, I mean, you know, I mean, that's just one example right off the top of my head. Whether or not that type of satire qualifies as absolute negation, I would I'd probably agree a little bit with Camus. It does not, because obviously he's starting from the point of departure of ruling class, ruling ideas. He's merely critiquing them, not negating them, I guess. Well, and we have to remember, right, he just got finished calling Marx a bourgeois prophet because he critiqued the status quo using bourgeois discourse right? And yep. bourgeois forms mm -hmm. of analysis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe the Greek poets and playwrights were using bourgeois discourse to try to critique the status quo. Camus would argue maybe that that's not acceptable, right? That it doesn't qualify as truly rebellious because he definitely makes that critique of Marx, right? He says this isn't a, a true critique because it uses the same discourse of the times. I don't know. But then he goes in to say, you know, that the novel in its modern form was created in the 18th century, the same time that he argues the spirit of rebellion came into being through Saad and so forth. And then he talks about the French Revolution, obviously. So it's interesting that, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that claim that the novel and it's as we know it today, right, was born in the 1700s, essentially? So I'm willing to admit that a lot of those, um, romantic or transcendental or even nihilistic works aside from fathers and sons that we had to we had to talk about i haven't read a lot of them i don't know that i have the literary experience to speak to them being 
invented as acts of rebellion. And I guess I'm having a hard time, even if I was more familiar with them, seeing how they are not also speaking um, within the context of the bourgeoisie. I, I guess mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm not seeing the distinction. Between, well, also, I mean, between, to be fair to Camus, he's not arguing that every novel is rebellious. Right. I don't think that he doesn't make that blanket claim. He's just arguing here that the first novels as we know them coincided with the birth of the spirit of rebellion. Right. He would say that, like, you know. But they coincided with a whole host of other things as well. The Enlightenment mm-hmm. and like, I mean, so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So. Well, I mean, those things are definitely connected. Right. He would argue yeah. that, I think, for sure yeah. as well. I mean, most people do make the argument that fathers and sons was one of the first novels as we know it right that in russian literature was the first right i don't know if there's a lot of argument against that even like you know the others were you know like dante etc were epics of pure fantasy for sure the russian novelists have an interesting balance kim will refer to this equilibrium in a second balance between reality and fiction, right? Like fathers and sons is clearly made up. Like this doesn't happen. It's not a work of history, but it does reflect reality to an extent as well. Would we call Don Quixote a novel? I guess that's neither here nor there. I'm just trying to think of things that are just slightly before this period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a good one. Yeah. I'm trying to think of where Camus would place them within this, this line in this, like on what side of the line that he's drawn where would he place them? It does. I mean, mm-hmm. It's neither here nor there, but like I said, it's got me thinking a little bit. Anyway, right. he says, quote, revolutionary criticism condemns the novel in its pure form as being simply a means of escape or an idle imagination. In everyday speech, we find the term romance used to describe an exaggerated description or lying account of the sum, of some event. Camus takes issue with this rejection. So he says that the revolutionaries, right, say that this is basically novels are literature is a false escape. Right. It's men seeking the escape of reality. And so by reading these books, it gives them a means to, you know, escape from their actual social circumstances. And therefore, it's, you know, essentially distracting them from the revolution and preventing them from facing things and participating in, you know, and so forth. But Camus actually takes issue with this. And I actually like this. He suggests that novels, you know, rather than being a representation of man's desire to escape reality, actually result from man's alienation within society. So he has a quote here that I like. He says, the contradiction is this. Man rejects the world as it is without accepting the necessity of escaping it. In fact, men cling to the world and by far the majority do not want to abandon it. Far from always wanting to forget it, they suffer on the contrary from not being able to possess it completely enough. Estranged citizens of the world exiled from their own country. So according to Camus, men don't actually want to escape society. They want to belong to society. They want to, to use his terminology, possess it completely, right? So they feel alienated within their own society. They don't want to escape. They just want to belong. They want to have ownership over it, right? They want to possess it to use Camus' terminology. What do you think about that? I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm going to bring this into the 20th or 21st century, I should say. Camus was definitely writing in the 20th century. I'm going to bring it in the 21st century with all of, of course, the fantasy that we have 
uh, fantasy content from um, mm. what we would now call novels, although I'm, I guess we're being generous when we start thinking about like Hunger Games and whatnot being novels, but um, or Harry Potter or whatever being novels, these very, very popular um, mass appeal types of literature. An easy interpretation is that a lot of it is escapism, escapism from the mm -hmm. alienation that we're all experiencing today. But the other part that I do agree with Camus with, especially when we think about these things, is that we want – it's not purely about the escape. We're not dreaming of the apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse, the alien apocalypse, the wizard apocalypse, whatever apocalypse that we're talking about. We're not dreaming it. <laughs> We're not dreaming about that strictly for the escape properties. We're dreaming that we're Harry. We're dreaming that we are in The Walking Dead, Rick the Sheriff. We're dreaming that we are now the ones that are commanding that new society. And mm -hmm. I think that does speak to this idea that, that, that we don't want wholesale negation. We want not only participation, but um, control. We want that mm -hmm. control. And so, yeah, yeah, because we do. That alienation has made us feel like we... We don't have. Uh, uh, we only have marginal degrees of control over our own lives within um, modern technocratic society. So I actually I would agree with Camus on this. Not even that, but like meaning, right? Like the hero mm -hmm. in all of those books that you just talked about, right? Their lives have meaning. They have a purpose, right? There's a goal for them in the plot right. that is their like eternal goal, whatever it is, right? Beyond being Aberdeen is you know saving yeah. the districts and so forth. Like we all either consciously or subconsciously, I think mo for most people, it's more subconscious and that's not mm -hmm. necessarily meant to be demeaning, but I just don't know a lot of people spend a lot of time daily thinking about this, but there is a feeling there. They are feeling that alienation, that one dimensionality. Um, they're struggling for uh, that stimulus, as I've just cited three different like philosophers we've, <laughs> we've talked about recently, right? From Marx to uh, Marcuse to... Um, uh oh my god stimulus struggle holy jeez it Desmond doesn't matter. Morris. thank you Desmond Morris um mm -hmm. but yeah like these these stories are symptoms of this genuine understanding um i nay not understanding did i just say nay what is this like the, the 18th century now i'm in like <laughs> what are we doing here anyway <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> it's it's not understanding. Like I said, there's a subconscious feeling. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but of just general dissatisfaction. Because um, mm -hmm. if it was understanding, we would actually maybe be able to do something about it. I don't know that we would achieve the, the, the total annihilation or negation that Camus would be looking for in his rebellion. But regardless, there would be to at least be reform. But there is a subconscious feeling, and I think it's revealed. And we've talked about this ad nauseum. In fact, we thought about making a class about it. Like, what does the apocalyptic literature and film and and gaming and all of those things say about our society? What is it mm -hmm. about our society? So, I mean, this definitely speaks to us. And I, we could probably go ramble on and on and on about this. But back to Camus, I think I'm I'm in agreement with him on this. It's not Although just it's escape. It's about that... control. It's about a lack of control and goals. The two like... episodes that we happen to pick, right? Um, Hunger Games and Harry Potter, he would probably say that those fit in the world of fantasy, right? I mean, they're universes that have to be created for these stories to take place in. Contrasting those with like fathers and sons, right? That takes place in feudal Russia. Like there's no creating a universe like it, that was real life. Or in Camus' time, right? Sartre, I think, had just published Nausea, which is most famous novel, right? And like the like metaphysically existential novel, like par excellence, at least for Sartre's existentialism. Um, Camus, I think he had published The Stranger already at this point. 
And I mean, those are two like pinnacle examples of the realist, absurdist novel. And they both take place like in real life on the streets. I think nausea is in Paris. And I don't remember where the stranger takes place. Algeria. That would make sense, I think. Um, but like, you know, if you're writing the Lord of the Rings or the Hunger Games or Harry Potter, yes, it's based in reality because there's like water and, you know, humans and et cetera. But like you have to create a whole universe. You have to invent a reality for that story to take place. And so I think Camus would say he would probably just discount those, you know, offhand as that's fantasy. It doesn't actually reflect reality in any way. Right. And so. But I, I mean, from a material, from a material condition standpoint, I might agree with Camus on that, but not for the humanity part of it, not for the psychological, emotional, cognitive, like the things that we're meant to experience through the characterization. And that's not me necessarily defending these as grandiose works of art by any mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination, um, but to completely disassociate them from our current reality under the auspices of fantasy, I don't. I wouldn't agree with him on that point I mean, at all. It's the same as like, you know, Dante's Inferno or something. Right. Any of the, the classical works, same thing is true, right? There are human beings that are in those works, but it requires a certain level of fantasy very clearly, right? And Camus is not clear in this section, which is why we're struggling here. And I think most people do. He doesn't say this is exactly what qualifies as a fantasy. This is exactly what qualifies as a novel. And that's why my argument of it being born in the 18th century is valid and so forth. Right. Like that doesn't happen. And now I'm drawn back to like the, the, the classic that we all were kind of forced to read back in middle school or high school or whatever of Camus era. Right. Like Catcher in the Rye. Where does that novel sit? Right. I, I, mm -hmm. I mean, is that just a, a softer version of what is being produced in Europe at this Wait, is uh, J.D. Salinger European? I think he's American, right? Yeah. He actually anyway. does have a section on the American novel specifically, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Anyway, it's neither here nor there at this point. I think the 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 premise here is interesting. I'll, I'll I mean, leave this it is what Camus says about the American novel. He says, and he's talking about, he refers to Faulkner as his example in his footnotes. He says, the American novel claims to find its unity in reducing man either to elementals or to his external reactions and to his behavior. It does not choose feelings or passions to give a detailed description of, such as we find in classic French novels. It rejects analysis and the search for a fundamental psychological motive that could explain and recapitulate the behavior of the character. This is why the unity of this novel form is only the unity of the flash of recognition. Its technique consists in describing men by their outside appearances in their most casual actions of reproducing without comment everything they say down to their repetitions. And finally, by acting as if men were entirely defined by their daily automatisms. On this mechanical level, men, in fact, seem exactly alike, which explains this peculiar universe in which all the characters appear interchangeable, even down to their physical peculiarities. And then he continues, this technique is called realistic, only owing to a misapprehension. In addition to the fact that realism in art is, as we shall see, an incomprehensible idea, it is perfectly obvious that this fictitious world is not attempting a reproduction pure and simple of reality, but the most arbitrary form of stylization. And he continues on and on. Anyway, his argument is that American novels are different than French classical novels. I don't think we need to really like dive deep into that argument because neither of us probably care. No, I mean, it does have me thinking a little bit. When let's rewind when was the rebel written 50 55 
I think okay. it was translated in 55, written in 54 or something like that. Okay. I, it just also had me thinking about On the Road uh, by Jack Kerouac as well. Mm -hmm. And that description kind of actually laid it out pretty well, the one that he just described. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually kind of interesting. On the Road kind of seen as a quote-unquote rebellious take. I mean, right, it's the beat movement of the 1950s and so on and so forth. And yet I think Camus just, I mean, it, using Camus, even though he'd probably not read On the Road, that deconstruction. So kind this of was written that. in the Revel was like 1954. The English translation was 56. On the yeah. Road was 1957. 57. Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. it right here. Okay, but still, something that we consider to be a rebellious work also fit Camus' description, even though it had not been created yet. So that's quite interesting. Oh, I don't know if he would argue that it was rebellious because it's purely like, I mean, it's essentially a stream of consciousness, right? I mean, he literally wrote it on one continuous scroll. So Camus might argue, we haven't got here yet to his discussion of reality and abstraction in literature, but Camus might argue that On the Road would actually be a ex perfect example of like trying to reproduce reality, which is impossible, he then later says, but how no, rebellious saying, is that? You know what I mean? No, that's what I'm saying, that, that, that something we perceive to be rebellious, Camus yeah. has also, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. Camus would, yeah. Okay, in the novel, quote, we have an imaginary world, therefore, which is created by the ref rectification of the actual world a world where suffering can if it wishes continue until death where passions are never distracted where people are prey to obsessions and are always present to one another man is finally able to give himself the alleviating form and limits which he pursues in vain in his own life the novel creates destiny to suit any eventuality in this way it competes with creation and provisionally conquers death so the novel according to camus I mean, addresses one part of the absurdist equation, which is death and mortality and this constant seeking for answers, right? Because in the novel, immortality essentially can be sought and achieved. It takes place in reality, but these certain metaphysical limitations can be removed, right? Given, uh, depending on the story and so forth. So it's not like a fantasy where we have to exist in the world of Harry Potter, we can exist in the real world, but the plot devices, the form of the novel can alleviate the metaphysical strain which human beings um, are forced to live under. Kind of interesting there. Then the next section is rebellion and style. He says, quote, by the treatment that the artist imposes on reality, he declares the intensity of his rejection. But what he retains of reality in the universe that he creates reveals the degree of consent that he gives to at least one part of reality. So he's essentially saying art is simultaneously an affirmation of some portion of reality and a rejection of some portion of reality. Um, and it has this in common with the original form of rebellion, which Camus talks about earlier on in the work, right? That the slave acting against his master is a negation of his oppression and his status as a slave, but an affirmation of the thing within himself that he finds that has value. And then that he finds within all other humans that has value. Camus says art is the same thing, that art, whatever it rejects and chooses not to depict and hold on to in its reflection of the world, it rejects, right? And as such, like that is a critique of reality but that whatever it does choose to retain in its depiction of its universe that it has created, it is consenting to that form, that version, that aspect of reality. So art is both an affirmation and a rejection simultaneously. Anything to add there? 
I'm good with that. No, no. I mean, I, I guess that's what I was looking for earlier. Um, yeah, and some of these explanations. Provided early on. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm good with that. I, I like that. Quote, but just as there is no nihilism that does not end by supporting, supposing a value, and no materialism that being self-conceived does not end by contradicting itself, so formal art and realist art are absurd concepts. No art can completely reject reality. So he's now said that basically there, you can't be on the absolute ends of the spectrum, right? You can't be a fully realistic art form, piece of art, whether that's right. literature, painting, whatever, that can't exist. And he goes on later to actually explain it can't exist because it would have to be infinite. We can't possibly reproduce reality as it exists because we would have to literally describe and depict every single aspect of reality throughout the universe. That's impossible. He said, you also can't go the opposite way and completely reject reality wholesale because there would essentially be nothing left, right? So the example we were talking about earlier, Harry Potter or Dante's Inferno, or I forget which one you used in this example, there at least is humanity left, right? Emotion and drive right. and so forth. These very basic, I don't want to use the term essence here because it has all kinds of connotations for German ideology, et cetera, which Camus is critiquing. But there's at least some aspect of reality that maintains. So whether we're talking about, you know, the Greek poets or Dante or, you know, whoever wrote the Hunger Games, that I, Collins or something, like any of these, there's some aspect of reality that they are forced to maintain, that you can't reject it completely. There are no original ideas, wholly original ideas. Everything says, is built off of something, off of our right. socialization, off of the material yep. conditions, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Off of the hegemonic ideology, there is always going to be that there. Right. To be really realistic, a description would have to be endless. That's what I was saying earlier. That's his quote there. Um, writers are forced to, he's back on the novel, right? Writers are forced to choose which aspects of reality to maintain and which aspects they are going to fictionalize. And his quote here, which I like a lot, he says, quote, to write is already to choose. And then he goes on later, he actually mentions this sort of in passing, which I thought was interesting because it was my I think really important part. And I, I didn't put the quote in here in my notes, but he says that that choice, which you just talked about is a result of how we are already socialized, you know, our internalization of the hegemonic order and so forth. Right. A priori, this has already existed within us. So the choices that we make to depict in our art, the choices that we make to exclude some part of reality and fictionalize some part and to maintain some part, et cetera, these in some way, whether that's a little or a lot, right, are a result of our socialization, a result of our values that we've been indoctrinated with, a result of the status quo. The, even the act of writing itself, choosing that specific form mm -hmm. is, it reveals, it reveals the socialization, right? Like writing is, we've talked about the invention of writing. We've done it in prior episodes. We're not going to mm -hmm. go back and like reference them. I don't really remember which ones they're in, but writing was invented as a mechanism for control, control yep. over narrative. And to be blunt, I, I hate to say it, but like legislation, not legislation as we know it in the modern form with Congresses and so on and so forth, but legislation, right? Writing is invented so that the king can tell his story. Gilgamesh, writing is invented so that Hammurabi can create a legal code as to why he's awesome and you're not, right? Like, so mm -hmm. even the act of writing in and of itself, right, that is, that's control. That is a control mechanism. So yeah. I like what Camus says here. When you choose to write, you're already, that, that's already one step. 
Then he talks about how art and rebellion, and he terminology switches back and forth between like writing and literature and just using the blanket term of art. Then he transitions to creation, right? Creation and rebellion share a commonality, according to Camus, you know, while rebellion can result in total rejections of values, as with like his examples of Saad and Stirner, or a totalitarian revolution, which he goes in in the previous example in part three with Stalin. Um, art results in either total abstraction, which is represented by a complete abandonment of reality, or what he calls, quote unquote, formal obscurantism, represented by an attempt to wholly reproduce reality. Now, like we just talked about, you can't go all the way in either one of those directions. Right. Those are both impossibilities. But he said that it, it goes the direction of re rebellion, right? It either is like results in the Saad and the Sterners or it results in the Stalins and the Hitlers, right? Rebellion does. He says art can go both ways. Quote, if the equilibrium is destroyed, the result is dictatorship or anarchy, propaganda or formal insanity. In either case, creation, which always coincides with rational freedom, is impossible. Whether it succumbs to the intoxication of abstraction and formal obscurantism, or whether it falls back on the whip of the crudest and most ingenious realism, modern art in its semi-totality is an art of tyrants and slaves, not of creators. What do you have to think about that? Say one more time for me, the last part. Mm -hmm. Whether it falls back on the whip of the crudest and most ingenious realism, Modern art in its semi-totality is an art of tyrants and slaves, not of creators. So he's saying, his yeah. argument here in this section is essentially that society is now so polarized, right? Not now, but in the 60s, maybe now too, if not more, but that's a whole other conversation. But at the time that Camus is writing, you know, he's arguing that, I mean, and the whole work, like we talked about, is he's commenting on Stalin's Soviet Union. Right. And what had just happened in Hitler's uh, Germany and elsewhere. He's saying that now society is so polarized in that respect that we're either with, you know, the Sods and the Sterners who have rejected everything or with the Stalins and the Hitlers that are totalitarian in different respects, right? Rational and irrational totalitarianism. Right. That art too is polarized, that it's either yeah. the art of tyrants or it is the art of slaves, right? The oppressed or the oppressor. And not of what Camus, in this case, calls creators, right? He would say are true creators. Right. And spoiler Agreed. alert, he's going to say that there needs to be a synthesis, that creation lies in the middle of these two extremes, which is what he gets to next. What do you think about that? So I would agree with the context in which he's writing, right? Like you mm -hmm. have, and here's the thing, like there's de exponentially more art being produced by the slave master or whatever we want to call it, the Stalins, the, 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 the Hitlers, the mm -hmm. shoot. I, I know he's not critiquing this at the time, but I would argue like even the more Republican style of governments um, in Western Europe or the United States, like they are the primary producers of what we consider art at that time. And the mm -hmm. art of the slaves is, is it, the plebes, whatever, uh, the proletariat masses is minimal. I would agree with it there. Mm -hmm. The comment that I want to add, though, is the illusion that the slaves now, because of modern technology, um, now have more ability to create on their own is, again, it's a, I use that word intentionally, it's illusory. So mm -hmm. that's the other thing is that 
we've been socialized to the extent, and I don't know what this has to do with Camus at this point in time, but I do want to get it out there because I think that's what he's alluding to, is that the slaves have been wholly socialized by the art produced before, that the art they themselves can produce, even with all of the tools available to us at this point, is merely the art of the slave master. Mm-hmm. So the slaves themselves are reproducing the art of, of, of their oppressor, so to speak. And in that, I would wholly agree that most art produced even today is um, anything but rebellious. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly not absurd. He says, quote, when stylization is exaggerated and obvious, the work becomes nothing but pure nostalgia. The unity it is trying to conquer has nothing to do with concrete unity. On the other hand, when reality is delivered over to unadorned fact or to insignificant stylization, then the concrete is presented without unity. Great art, style, and the true aspect of rebellion lies somewhere in between these two heresies. So he's saying the reality I mean, this is right, this like cliche, reality is somewhere in the middle. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Somewhere between like the complete abstraction and somewhere, and on the other hand, right, the absolute depiction of reality, that somewhere in the middle is true, he says, great art style, the true aspect of rebellion, right? True creation, which is the next section. The next heading in the book is creation and revolution, where Camus tries to break this down even further. He says, quote, in art... Rebellion is consummated and perpetuated in the act of real creation, not in criticism or commentary. Revolution, in its turn, can only affirm itself in a civilization and not in terror or tyranny. So he's still comparing art and rebellion to revolution. And he says art and rebellion can only consummate themselves in real creation, where revolution can only affirm itself in the creation of a civilization. So remember, his whole goal here is to create totalitarianism. And he's saying that totalitarianism isn't the result of revolution. Revolution only results, it only ends, right, when a civilization is born. And in that regard, revolution only ends when creation is made possible, which, spoiler alert, he'll get to in just a few seconds, right? So I would argue that something like, I mean, I'm going to argue for Camus, right? Something like Guernica, which we, I mean, almost everyone thinks is like this great, critique right of the event and the entire like social milieu that was happening at the time i think camus might say isn't true creation because it only was an act of criticism now Mm -hmm. this is a huge huge debate right and adorno has a lot of commentary here and so forth right many people argue that criticism is itself art you know what i mean that any type of art, criticism is art, and that art is criticism. Camus seems to take the position that true creation, right? he says the act of real creation is not criticism or commentary. What do you think about that? I'm game. I agree with it. It, it goes back to the idea that there is nothing wholly original due to the socialization we talked about. And even those of us that are critics, which you and I fall under, we I, I would argue that we... I'm going to say it, are not creators. We're not artists. We're not rebellious Mm -hmm. artists. We are critics. Um, And I don't think that we would qualify. Uh, And I would agree with Camus on that. I I am not a creator. We also have to remember back to earlier sections where he categorizes, you know, like Saad as absolute negation and Stirner and Nietzsche as absolute affirmation, right? He would probably argue that art that only critiques functions as a negation of the status quo, but that does not qualify as creation. Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, we had other philosophers like, you know, Bakunin where, you know, destruction 
what I'll butcher this, but paraphrasing, right? The the urge to destroy is also a creative urge, something like that, right? Yeah, but I mean, then we're getting into like, then we're getting into post-structuralism, right? Like the constant deconstruction without any answer for what will be reconstructed. Mm-hmm. And Camus would argue that that reconstruction cannot be imagined without absolute negation. And that absolute negation is nearly impossible since the criticism the critique requires at least some sort of acceptance of the current material and contextual conditions. So now we're talking ourselves in circles as we go mm-hmm. through like these different philosophers. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not accusing Camus necessarily of talking in, in circles, although maybe right. a little bit he is, but the way we frame these various philosophies, how sometimes there are incongruencies. Again, if you've gone back and watched some of our videos on post-structuralism or one dimensionality or stimulus struggle, you're going to see all of these individuals are writing within a couple of decades of each other. And you can kind of Mm -hmm. see these different takes on how to deal with, if we go all the way back to the 1840s, alienation, right? So, Mm -hmm. Well, can you keep in mind that Camus is writing this right at I mean, almost within a, within a couple of years of when people point to the beginning of post-structuralism in France, right? And he's right. writing this. He's French, obviously. So yeah. clearly he's a precursor. Let's just call him a precursor to post-structuralism, right? Um, he says, quote, the two questions that are posed by our times to a society caught in a dilemma is, is creation possible? Is the revolution possible? He says, these are in reality only one question, which concerns the renaissance of civilization. So he says, basically, we have to ask two questions. Is creation possible? Is revolution possible? And he says, these are basically one and the same. Quote, if the rebel must simultaneously reject the frenzy of annihilation and the acceptance of totality, the artist must simultaneously escape from the passion for formality and the totalitarian aesthetic of reality. The world today is one, in fact, but its unity is the unity of nihilism. Civilization is only possible if, by renouncing the nihilism of formal principles and the nihilism without principles, the world rediscovers the road to a creative synthesis. So here we finally, you know, we're at page whatever, 200-something of this book. Camus is just starting to give us a glimpse into his position, right, in his argument, which will he'll obviously lay out in section 5 when we get there next. But he's basically saying, we must find the synthesis between the nihilism that rejects everything like Saad and Stirner, and the nihilism which results in totalitarianism, right? Hitler, the idea of the Ubermensch adopted by the Nazis, Stalin, and so forth, that we have to essentially rise above these two extremes and find the middle ground, the synthesis of these that will enable true creation. What? An argument for the middle path? I think a guy named Siddhartha had that argument. I don't know. Right. (laughs) I don't even know how many centuries ago, fifth century BCE. Yeah. Anyway, no, Quote, I mean, it's not, it's not remotely the same. I'm not. No. Quote, art and society, creation and revolution to prepare for this event, this true creation must rediscover the source of rebellion where refusal and acceptance, the unique and the universal, the individual and history balance each other in a condition of acute tension. So he's essentially saying, you know, this, the initial point of rebellion and this, you know, the absurdist rebellion, which is confronting the absurd, maintaining awareness of the absurdist position, you know, finding that thing in the moment of value within yourself that is worth defending to the death in this initial act of rebellion. He says, art and society, creation and revolution to prepare for this real act of creation must rediscover this initial position, this source of rebellion, according to Camus. He says, quote, the appalling society of tyrants and slaves in which survive 
in which we survive will find its death and transfiguration only on the level of creation. Only once creation is made possible will this, you know, the social circumstances in which we find ourselves, this totalitarianism, only once we are able to create will that come to an end. And Camus, in fact, argues that the end of totalitarian revolution is the, sorry, not the end, the pinnacle, the peak of totalitarian revolution is the death of art. Once art is made impossible, then the revolution will die and then creation will be made possible. He says, quote, modern conquerors can kill, but do not seem to be able to create. He continues in the long run, therefore, Art in our revolutionary societies must die, but then the revolution will have lived its allotted span. So he says, once totalitarianism runs its course fully and completely, we will only be left with conquerors and there will be no creators. There will be no art. And if you remember back, he critique, he uses in this section, he repeats it actually, you know, Nietzsche's idea that, you know, men must create their own values, right? They must realize the, you know, abandon, you know, God is dead, etc., and that men must rise above and create their own values uh, under which to live, this concept of the ubermensch, etc. We talked about this back in section three, I think it was. And Camus says something to the effect of, you know, unfortunately, Nietzsche's big mistake was realizing that totalitarianism comes easier than art to modest men, I think he says, or something like that, right? And so totalitarian results, Camus is arguing, we must get back to that, that sense of creation. And that only once totalitarian has run its course, once we are left with no one but totalitarianists, and there are no more creators, then the revolution must necessarily end and creation will be made possible again. But he says, you know, this will result in hell, this absolute totalitarianism. And he says, you know, if finally the conquerors succeed in molding the world according to their laws, it will not prove that quantity is king, but that the world is hell. In this hell, the place of art will coincide with that of vanquished rebellion, a blind and empty hope in the pit of despair. But hell can endure for only a limited period, and life will begin again one day. He says, so absolute totalitarianism very clearly will be disastrous. It will result in hell, to use Camus' words, but out of that hell will be born again the initial spirit of rebellion and along with it, the ability to create, creation, art, etc. What do you think about that? I don't know that I disagree or agree with it. I do find it to be, I guess what I, my first thought um, is that it can be used, it, this quote and this thought could be used for the accelerationist argument, which exactly is a turnoff for me. when I read it, yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of the accelerationist argument because of all of the, the, the quote unquote casualties and the things that we're going to leave mm -hmm. by the wayside just to get to that creative essence. Um, my morality or ethics won't allow me to be an accelerationist. So, but back, yeah, that's just because you're socialized into those ethics. And I, am, I, I am. I am socialized <laughs> into those. Not, no, not all of them. We know we differ on this one. I think some of it's human nature, but that's a whole different argument that we don't need to open up that can of worms right now. Anyway, I mean, that was my first thought. It, it, mm -hmm. it could be misconstrued as accelerationist. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because I thought the exact same thing. Yeah. And he's actually arguing sort of against, right, the argument that he's, he's arguing against in this whole work, which is Sartre's and others, is that 
you know, their argument was basically the casualties being caused by the Soviet Union are worth it if the ends, sorry, the means are sort of worth it if we can get to the communist ends, right? The accelerationist argument is essentially that, but it should happen more quickly, right? That's their argument. Right. Yes, maybe millions of people will have to die. Let's do it as quickly as possible so that we can get there as fast as possible. And then I guess in theory, maybe the casualties will be minimized because we've gone through that. We've gone through hell, you know, incredibly quickly. So it quote unquote, you know, won't be so bad. Right. Yeah. I thought the same exact thing, but he doesn't make that argument, but it's easy to read into that argument. Right. He's saying we have to go to the, to the worst, right. We have to go through hell before the spirit of rebellion and creation will be born again. He's not saying let's do that as quickly as possible. He's just saying that it needs to happen, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just such a turnoff of an, of an argument when you read into Mm -hmm. it, that acceleration argument, there are very few things that, that wear me out more than the accelerationist argument when you talk to people about it. But anyway, that that's neither here nor there. So we also have to go back and say, you know, remember this started to connect to a lot of the myth of Sisyphus for me and some of the arguments that he made there, right. Where, you know, this lack of hope, that the absurdist necessarily has a lack of hope. And he even talks about it in the beginning of this book when he's talking about, you know, the slave and the master and the slave and the initial point of rebellion. It's not a hopeful, right? This act in the moment isn't the hope for some future. In fact, Camus charges, you know, the Marxists for being this, for being prophetic and having this hope in this future that someday will come into being, right? Camus argues against all of that. So he would say actually that accelerationism is this hope that we can do it as quickly as possible. He would have all kinds of problems with that because it's, it has hope. Right. And so that's his commentary here is void of all hope. He's not saying, you know, we should look forward to this day or we should bring it into being as quickly as possible. He's just matter of factly saying someday, we don't know when, when this happens, then creation will be possible. His quote, Is it possible eternally to reject injustice without ceasing to acclaim the nature of man and the beauty of the world? Our answer is yes. This ethic, at once unsubmissive and loyal, is in any event the only one that lights the way to a truly realistic revolution. In upholding the beauty, we prepare the way for the day of regeneration when civilization will give first place far and ahead of the formal principles and degraded values of history, to this living virtue on which is founded the common dignity of man and the world he lives in, and which we must now define in the face of a world that insults it. So he's essentially saying the only way to a quote-unquote truly realistic revolution is to reject injustice while simultaneously, quote, acclaiming the nature of man and the beauty of the world. And if we think back to his discussion very early on of rebellion, this is essentially exactly what the rebel does in the moment of rebellion, right? It simultaneously rejects the injustice of the master and it, you know, acclaims the thing of value within themselves, right? The slave recognizes something in themselves that's worth dying for. And in the act of rebellion rejects their oppression. He says the only way to a truly realistic revolution is to essentially find that spirit again in the midst of totalitarianism, essentially, Camus was arguing, we must find the ability, the position, right, to reject the injustice and at the same time, you know, exalt the thing of beauty within each individual man and mankind. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I don't have any. I don't know that I have any thoughts on that. I, I, I mean, 
like a true post-structuralist, even though he's writing before post-structuralism, post-structuralism, post-structuralism is like really fleshed out as like this, mm-hmm. this postmodern philosophy, there is no firm answer. It's all vague. Like, and it is, and I appreciate like, like that idea because anything that is prescriptive reconstructs and a post-structuralist should not reconstruct. And I appreciate that. But going back to this idea of, of, of revolution first the fact that he in an earlier section in historical rebellion kind of alluded to the idea there's never been an actual real revolution under his Mm -hmm. his his definition and the fact that whatever revolution could be upcoming requires this move towards totalitarianism and the abolition of creation for the creation to actually come back i guess I'm, i'm still trying to follow that bouncing ball a little bit and the idea that we need to get to some, and I'm going to accuse them of him of this probably unjustly, in fact it is unjustly, but this romanticized notion of getting back to, I mean, I guess he doesn't even really define it. It's, it's not defined, this idea of, of rebellion for rebellion's sake, but somehow divorced from the material and contextual realities that we exist within getting into that that type of mindset I, I guess i just don't i don't understand where we're supposed to go it, let me be blunt let me just flat out say it i don't understand what he's looking for in that that quote you just read well that's a perfect way to end this episode because you're not supposed to understand because that's all of section five is him okay. laying out fair enough uh, where we're supposed I, to go and what i mean he's going back on himself a couple of times here so i'm again i i, I don't want to call Camu. um out i mean he's he's brilliant but like i guess that part was just it almost undid the whole section we just read and not just that section but some of the earlier ones as well but regardless let's let's finish him up in section five next episode yep all right i'm nick i'm jared later thank you for listening to this episode please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show also know that we have a youtube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.